If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Psalm 130. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 442, Psalm 130. You know, speaking of the Christmas pageant, it's getting to be that time of year again. I was listening to the radio the other day, and WFAS is already playing Christmas music. Bruce Springsteen, actually. Uh, he's making a list. He's checking it twice. Going to find out who's been naughty or nice. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake. But what about those poor boys and girls who haven't been good? What about the naughty boys and girls? They aren't going to get anything from Santa Claus. Their Christmas will be ruined, but, but we don't feel sorry for them, right? Because we don't even give them a moment's thought. They deserve it. They should have been good leading up to Christmas time. They're bad children, and bad children deserve the consequences. They shouldn't share in the joy and the blessings that the rest of us good people enjoy at Christmas time. Well, the psalm that we're looking at this morning is the prayer of a bad child. A child who's been naughty instead of nice. A child who, if the song is right, isn't going to get anything from Santa Claus except a, a stocking of coal. Only in the psalm, this isn't child's play. It isn't fairy tales. It's real life. It's real grown-ups and not a fictitious Santa Claus who has the power to ruin a child's Christmas, but a very real God who has the power to ruin a person's life and more than that, their eternity. So in real life, in the grown-up world, who are the bad children who have been naughty instead of nice? Well, I once took a seminary course called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And the damned in the course title were those people that we're talking about here. People who, who see themselves as damned because society has written them off as losers, as unsavory characters, as criminals. Think prisoners, uh, think illegal aliens, uh, illegal immigrants, think drug dealers, think prostitutes. People who can't participate in polite society without getting sideways looks. People who, when cars drive past them, they hear the click of car doors locking. People who, every time a police car drives by, hold their breaths and just hope it keeps going. That's the neighborhood that this psalm is coming from. I mean, listen to verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. This is a cry out of the depths. In the Bible, then, what are the depths? Well, some translations paraphrase here, the depths of trouble or the depths of despair, but the Hebrew language just has depths. Where are the depths? Well, they're not the mountaintops. They're not the barley fields or the sheep pastures. They're not even the valleys. No, they're even lower than that. The depths are, are underground where the sun doesn't shine, or, or more likely the depths are the bottom of the sea. Think of the prophet Jonah's prayer when, when God sent the storm and, and to make it stop, he said to the sailors, throw me overboard. And they threw him over and he sunk down and he was drowning in the sea and he cried out to God, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. Now, in the view of the world prominent in Bible times, long before modern science, the sky was high above um, and often it was thought to be solid. It's sometimes called the firmament. The mountains were pillars which held up the sky, and, and below them was the land, and then below the dry ground was the sea, the deep, the depths. 
This has been called the three-tiered universe. The heavens, the earth, and the realm under the earth. And in this view of the world, the goal was always up. Human beings were always trying to, to go up, to move closer to God. Think of the Tower of Babel, building a tower up to the heavens. Or, or think of holy people climbing tall mountains to get closer to God and to meet with God on the tops of those mountains. The last place you wanted to go was down. To go down into the depths was to fall farther from God, to, to be God forsaken, to be damned, you could say. Remember in Genesis 1, the world began and it was all covered with the dark brooding waters of chaos. Watery chaos is where you can't live. It's inhospitable to life. It's, it's God forsaken. It's dark. It's evil. Watery uh, chaos was what covered the earth, but, but then God spoke and, and God created. God created the firmament, the sky, and God separated the waters above the sky from the waters below the sky. And then God created dry ground and caused it to appear and, and filled it with, with, with life, a hospitable place for life to flourish. That's where you want to be. You don't want to be in the depths. But this is where this psalmist is with the losers, with the God forsaken. He may not literally and geographically be in the depths, but, but he's at least there morally, cast off from God and from godly people, covered in, in guilt and shame and condemnation. He's probably there emotionally too, feeling hopeless and in despair. As Walter Brueggemann in his commentary on the Psalms puts it, this psalm is the miserable cry of a nobody from nowhere. This isn't the cry of a righteous man or a holy woman. No, it's the cry of a, of a guilty sinner. It's the cry of the God forsaken. Think, think of Jesus' parable in uh, Luke 18 where, where he says, One day two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee is the religious person like you and me, or at least like me. Uh, he goes to church. <laughs> He's paid to go to church. Uh, he, he knows how to pray. He, he's comfortable with God. Meanwhile, the tax collector is that God-forsaken person, far from God, written off by polite society, who calls from the depths. As Jesus put it, the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the place this psalm comes from. It's the prayer, it's a prayer for those drowning in the depths, forsaken by God. Not the prayer, not a prayer for good church folks like us who live securely in God's land and, and hope one day to climb up to the mountaintop to be closer to God. Or is it? Well, as we'll go on, you'll have to decide for yourself who this prayer is for. Let's talk for a minute, though, about people who do have a relationship with God. The way, the, the only way that people establish a relationship with God is through what the Bible calls a covenant. A, a covenant is a pact. It's an agreement. It's a, it's a treaty, you could say. It's a, it's a commitment between two parties. A good example is the commitment that a bride and groom make on their wedding day to, to love each other and to stick with each other until death do them part. It's formal, it's, it's public, it involves vows and, and commitments. It's, it's a covenant, it's a solemn commitment binding one person in relationship with another. 
And, and that's how God relates to people. God invites people into covenant relationships with him, relationships which are permanent, which are for keeps. And this kind of covenant, this kind of commitment is presupposed throughout the Psalms. Uh, the Psalmists are people in covenant with God. One way that we know this is, is the word Lord, which we see so often in the Psalms. And in this Psalm, Lord spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The word Lord, when all the letters are capitalized in, in our Bible, stands for the covenant name of God. It's, it's the name that, that God has given those who are in covenant with him to call him by. The other reason in this psalm that, that we know that a, a covenant is presupposed is, is verse 7, where um, there's this word which in my Bible is translated unfailing love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And uh, in some English translations, it's translated um, faithfulness or loving kindness. It's also a covenant word. It means to be faithful to your covenants. That's what hesed means. And God is full of hesed. God is always faithful to the commitments that God makes. But the problem is we are not. And in particular, this psalmist has not been. That's why he's in the depths. He's broken his covenant with God. We, we call this sin, being unfaithful to God, rebelling against God, turning our back on God, if even for a moment. And so the psalmist is, is crying out from the depths, um, and, and he's not a complete outsider to God. He's not a total godless person, but rather he's someone who used to be in relationship with God, but who has slipped, who has fallen away, who's turned away and been unfaithful and broken the covenant. You can think of him as the prodigal son, if, if you know the story of the prodigal son, who, who used to enjoy the father's favor and, and presence in the father's house, he used to have a place of privilege in the father's house, but now he's left home and he's gone far away to an alien country. And, and now he's, he's suffering and he's hurting and he's, he's drowning in the depths. And so what's he to do? What do you do when, when you've been unfaithful, when, when you've broken your promises, and not just to, to anyone, but to God himself? Well, this psalmist teaches us how to pray in circumstances like this. Now, isn't it amazing that God has given us a prayer from someone in the depths, one of the God-forsaken, to teach us how we should pray, or at least to teach us how we should pray when we've sinned? Of course, it fits with Jesus' parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector because both men pray, the religious man who spent his whole life in, in church, so to speak, and, and the sinner, the God-forsaken man. They both prayed. But, but which guy did Jesus hold up as the guy who prayed the prayer that God actually heard? It was the God-forsaken tax collector, right? So let's see if, if this guy, in this case, the God-forsaken psalmist, can teach us about praying from the depths praying our way back to God, praying our way out of sin. I see four lessons here. First, he teaches us to cry out to God right where we are. The psalmist is still in the depths, right? He hasn't climbed out. As the old saying goes, you don't have to clean yourself up before you take a shower. And likewise, the psalmist doesn't wait until he's cleaned up his act before he cries out to God. 
He's still in the depths. But, so what's changed then for the psalmist? What's changed in him from the sinful course of action he took, moving away from God, being unfaithful to God, which landed him in the depths? What's changed that now he's crying out to God to rescue him? Well, the only thing that's changed is that now he's sorry for what he's done. He's realized that, that it wasn't the way to life. Or, or the path to happiness and, and freedom, but rather the kinds of choices he's, he's made, they just land you in the depths. They leave you drowning in chaos. And so now he wants to come back, back to God, back to a life as we'll see walking with God. The word we often use for this change of heart is the word repent. To, to repent means to, to change your mind, to, to turn around, to change your direction. And that's all this guy has done. He, he hasn't made good on this resolution yet. He's still in the depths, but he wants a change. And that's enough to get his cry heard by God. Second lesson. In this prayer, the psalmist teaches us that we can't offer God anything when we're in the depths. The psalmist offers nothing. He doesn't promise to be better. He, he doesn't say to God, you should take me back because... No, what does he say to God? He says, may your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. The psalmist is, is coming with empty hands. He's simply asking for mercy. Luis Palau, a well-known evangelist, um, especially overseas, tells the story of a mother who once approached Napoleon, the French monarch, seeking for a pardon for her son. And the emperor replied to the woman that the young man had committed a certain serious offense twice and that justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the woman explained. I, I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I'm asking for. The emperor paused for a minute, and then the, the light of understanding began to dawn on his face. Well then, he said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. That's what the psalmist realizes, that, that, that there's nothing he could do or, or bring that would obligate or persuade God to pardon him. But God is free to just forgive and pardon anyway, just because... For no reason, but because God wants to. And the good news is that it's in God's very character to want to be merciful. It's in God's heart. There's something in God's heart which just goes out in mercy. That's what God is like. Look also at verse 4. With you there is forgiveness, so that we can, my translation says, with reverence serve you. This verse talks about forgiveness, and it talks about reverence. Forgiveness is, is what God offers us. Reverence is what we offer God. The, the Hebrew word here is literally the word fear. Those who fear God, who reverence God, aren't exactly scared of God, but, but they respect God a great deal. And, and they recognize full well how powerful God is and how terrible God's wrath is. And, and so those who fear God, those who reverence God, obey God and walk in his ways. So what's the relationship between forgiveness and reverence? 
Well, notice it's not what we'd expect in the psalm. It's not that we reverence God so that he will forgive us. No, in verse 4, it's exactly the opposite. It's that God forgives us so that we reverence him. Isn't that amazing? Forgiveness comes before reverence. Again, the psalmist teaches us that, that in the depths, we can't offer God anything. We don't have to reverence God so that he'll forgive us. No, we, we can just beg God for mercy just the way we are, and God is free to be merciful and indeed inclined to be, to be merciful always. And, and, and when we realize that, we're amazed and, and we're awestruck, and as a result, we find ourselves reverencing God. You know, when I sin, um, I, I can get stuck in the trap of, of thinking that God has to have standards. And, um, and so God is going to probably have to make it hard for me to be restored to his good graces. And so I think somehow I have to do penance. I, I have to be in the doghouse for a while with God. Maybe until his anger cools off or, or until I'm sufficiently sorry and, and, um, and I've somehow earned my way through being sorry and apologizing, apologizing, apologizing back into God's forgiveness. And finally he says, okay, I'll forgive you again. But what I've come to realize is that God, Jesus, wants me back close to him right now, right away. Because after all, Jesus is the very one who has the power to help me not sin next time. And so if I'm down in the ditch and I'm beating myself up for my sin, I'm cutting myself off from the very one who can restore me. And so down in the ditch is where the enemy, Satan, would like me to stay. Satan would love to use the opportunity of my sin to, to cut me off from Jesus, to, to separate me from God, so I stay guilty, so I stay defeated, so I stay struggling with my sin and out of the game. But that's not God's attitude. Jesus is ready to forgive, ready to, to pick us up, ready to embrace us, ready to help us move on. After all, what does verse 4 say in, in my translation? I know the different translations are a little different. It says in mine, so that we may with reverence serve you. Serve you. We're, we're not doing God or ourselves any good if we're down in the ditch groveling in penance. Jesus says, get up. I forgive you. I'll help you. Serve me again. Let's go. Come to me for mercy. That's why Robert Murray McChaney, the 19th century Scottish minister and writer, said, for every look you take at yourself and your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on Christ. All right, third lesson this psalmist teaches us through his prayer, and that is to realize that God isn't keeping track. Santa Claus may be making a list and checking it twice, but God, believe it or not, isn't. In verse 3, the psalmist asks rhetorically, If, Lord, you kept a record of sins, who could stand? In other words, God, if, if you were keeping track, if you were making a list and checking it twice, who would be left on your good list? Who could stand before you in innocence? And the psalmist concludes, nobody. Nobody would be able to stand before God and collect any rewards or beg any favors. 
And if you think you could stand, then, then let me ask you, how much time have you spent getting to know what God is really like? Because the overwhelming testimony of those who have taken time with, with sensitive hearts and with, with open minds to get to know what God is actually like, the, their overwhelming testimony is that, that God is, is far more good and, and far more pure, far more holy than we've dared to dream. But that we've actually given God far less glory and far less attention and far less love and far less respect and obedience than God deserves. And so what hope is there for us before God? If we've got a whole list of, of faults and, and shortcomings and a whole list of, of sins and demerits and black marks on the record, well, then if that's the case, our only hope is that God is not paying attention to the list. And that's exactly what the psalmist is banking on and assuring us of here. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning tells this story. He says, several years ago in a large West Coast city, rumors were um, spreading about a certain Catholic woman um, that she was having visions of Jesus. And uh, these reports reached the um, archbishop of that area, and uh, he decided to check her out because he knew there's a fine line between the authentic mystic and the lunatic fringe. So he met with her and he said, is it true, ma'am, that you're having visions of Jesus? Yes, she replied simply. Well, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell me the sins I confessed at my last confession, he said. The woman was stunned. <laughs> did, did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly, he said. Please call me if anything happens. And that was the end of that. Well, about 10 days later, um, the woman notified the archbishop um, that she'd had a recent apparition. And please come, she said. And within an hour, the archbishop arrived. He trusted eye-to-eye -eye contact. So he looked at her and he said, you just told me on the telephone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, Bishop, she said. I, I asked Jesus to tell me the sins that you confessed in your last confession. And the bishop leaned forward with the anticipation and his eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took him by the hand. She gazed deeply into his eyes and she said, Bishop, these are his exact words. I can't remember. The psalmist agrees. Now listen carefully. This doesn't mean that God has a divine case of amnesia. It doesn't mean that God doesn't keep track of any sins because in fact God says elsewhere that he's going to judge the world uh, based on what people have done. But what it does mean is that once you ask for mercy, God chooses to overlook all of your sins. He can't remember. As we continue to read the Bible, we get into the New Testament, we get into Jesus, we see more in detail how this works. I've shared this um, illustration with you, but it bears repeating. We've got two books here. This first book is me. It's the story of you, me, our life. Everything we've ever done when no one was looking. Everything we said in a moment of... Uh, 
lack of control that we shouldn't have said, everything that we thought deep in our hearts. It's the complete uncensored version of all those things that we'd rather forget about. This book over here contains um, the complete record of Jesus' life. His, his perfect life, all, all the, the times he stood up to temptation and didn't give in, all the people he loved, all the people he cared for, all the courageous stands he took, above all, the expression of his love for his father and, and for the world when he obediently went to the cross and, and gave his life sacrificially in love, laid down his life in love, for other people. It, it's all in here. And when Je the father reads this book, the father says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so what happens when you put your faith in Jesus, when you enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus, is that God takes your book and takes everything you've done and takes it away from you and puts what you've done into Jesus' book and then takes that away onto the cross. God's wrath and justice are poured out on it and it's finished. That's God's mercy. But it gets better than that because God doesn't leave you with an empty book. God then takes the perfect, wonderful life that Jesus lived and puts it inside of our book. And so when God reads the book of our life, God says, this is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's what, it's the gift that God offers us through Jesus Christ. The fourth lesson from the depths this psalmist teaches, and that is that we can count on God's full forgiveness now, right now, even if the restoration of our lives takes some time. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. The way the Bible uses this word hope is different from the way we use it when we say we're hoping it won't rain tomorrow or, or we're, we're hoping we got an A on the test. Because uh, that hope is a wish. We're, we're not completely sure. But, but when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about something sure because God is the surest one there is. God has hesed. When God says something, we can count on it. That's why in verse 6, the psalmist says he's waiting for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. Now, as the watchmen count the hours, as, as they go through the night and they're waiting and they're longing for morning, how sure are they that morning is, in fact, going to come? They're about as sure as you can be about anything. And that's how sure and more that the psalmist is that God has forgiven him. Sure is that the sun will rise tomorrow. After all, God is merciful. God is, is uh, full of hesed. God is totally faithful to his covenants. 
And God doesn't keep a record of wrongs when we cry out for mercy. We may break our promises, but God never breaks his. And so the psalmist is dead sure that God has heard his prayer and that God has forgiven him. He has peace. But God forgiving our sins is a different thing than God cleaning up the consequences. Our choices have consequences, right? We, we rob a bank, we get 10 to 20 years. We uh, cheat on a lover and we ruin a relationship that we had valued. We get hooked on pornography and we lose our closeness with God. And then we turn to God and we beg for forgiveness and God forgives us completely and totally. But look at verse 8. Not but look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. With the Lord is full redemption. Full redemption. God forgives us fully. But in the meantime, some of the consequences remain. Not because God is punishing us, but because God respects our choices. Did you hear that? Not because God is punishing us, but because God respects our choices. Think of God writing a novel, which is our life, and, and God respects us so much that God allows us to help write it too. And, and we mess up, and, and, and then we ask for forgiveness, and, and God forgives us fully and completely in mercy, in, in hesed. God chooses to not keep a record of our wrongs, but often God doesn't say, all right, we'll just back up and erase that chapter. No, what, what God often says is, is um, let's leave that chapter there. But, but it's okay. We'll work that into the story. And the story is still going to have a happy ending. Full redemption. But now it's just going to, we're going to have to get there differently. And, and because you did it your way instead of my way, it's going to take a little bit longer. So here's the psalmist, still in the depths, but now waiting for the Lord and waiting and waiting to get out of the depths. Three times, right, he repeats that he's waiting. But now he's waiting in hope. He's waiting totally forgiven and, and cleansed and restored. And, and he's totally certain that God is going to put his life back together again. That God is going to redeem his life from the depths totally and completely and make something whole and good and beautiful out of it again. And that is how you pray from the depths. If you come to one of the discussion groups today, we've got the discussion group in the lounge at 1215. We have the Bible class in 1115. We have the Bible class in here studying Romans. And then uh, we have the art discussion. Do we, Pat, this morning? What? If anyone, is if anyone's free in my office, the art discussion, and then the parenting discussion up in room one upstairs. So three different groups to gather around and discuss this further. Um, we're going to be, we're going to be um, talking about how to apply this. And um, we'll look at our tendency um, to go around this circle of repentance and faith uh, like the Pharisee does. And we're going to try to let the psalmist help straighten us out when it comes to the sins, when it comes to our sins comes to being in the depths. But maybe you want to come back to God right now. Maybe you've been in the depths. Maybe you've been afraid to come to God for mercy because you thought God wouldn't receive you or, or you thought you had to get your life cleaned up first. 
Well, you don't. You can come right now, just the way you are, and you can cry out from the depths. And if you'd like to do that as we sing the closing song now, I invite you to come forward. You could stand. You could kneel down, and I'd be happy to pray with you after the service. If you'd like prayer um, for anything else, there'll be some people with blue ribbons in the lounge, and, and you can go and get prayer for them as well.